communities and ecosystems, uh, having gone over populations. Uh, so first thing is, is uh, we need to define an ecosystem. Now this is not in your textbook, this definition, uh, but it's one that I found really useful because it's kind of an operational uh, definition. It's one that you can take and then you can use it to go through how ecosystems function. And, and so uh, we're going to define an ecosystem as, first of all, an area that includes all of the living organisms. Okay, so that's the first thing. So that means it can be any area you, that, you, that you choose. Um, it could be as small as a, as a fish tank or a terrarium. It could be as large as uh, a national forest or, you know, or, you know some, it just, it just depends on what you're trying to, to study. Uh, but it includes all of the living organisms that are interacting with their environment. Okay, it's so not just the organisms standing there; they're interacting with their environment every, every minute of every day. Okay, uh, and that environment is both living, so there's other organisms, prey, predators, whatever, uh, or if they're trees, well, there there's predators on trees or, or plants, uh, but they're interacting with other organisms of their same species. Um, and it also includes the non-living portion, the abiotic portion. So the interactions include both biotic and abiotic. Abiotic would be things like light, temperature, rainfall, soil types, you know, al altitude, latitude, all those things that affect the conditions that an ecosystem is in. Okay, so it's both living and non-living things. So we have our defined area. And in that defined area, uh, the ecosystem is all of the living organisms interacting with both the biotic or the living and the abiotic or non-living aspects of that particular area. Now, the result of this is that you get a flow of energy. This takes us back to core concepts, okay? Flow of energy. Without energy, nothing happens. Literally, nothing happens. Okay, so the, the ecosystem has to have a source of energy, which basically is the sun, because that's our only outside source of energy. And that, goes, that energy goes through plants, and then it goes into animals, and it ends up in, in the decomposers, and, you know, and so on. Okay, so there's going to be a flow of energy through that ecosystem. Now, there are three things that result from that. Define trophic structure. In other words, who's eating who? You know, what, what are the feeding relationships? Uh, what are moose eating? What kind of plants? That's part of a, a, a food chain. We're talking about food chains and food webs, which we'll, we'll get into some more. But in any ecosystem, ideally, your energy flows through that trophic structure. That's how the energy gets from one organism to another. Okay, so in our backyard over the weekend when the hawk swooped down and, and grabbed the bird, the little bird, that's energy flow. Okay? Energy is flowing. The, you know, the, the bird has built up energy. The hawk's going to eat the bird or it's going to feed it to its chicks, whatever. Um, but that's, the, that's energy flow. Okay? When caterpillars are, you know, inchworms are starting to show up because uh, we had some people talking about it. Um, and they're eating trees, tree leaves. That's energy flow, okay? So those are trophic structures. What does each organism, where does it get its energy from? Who feeds on who, okay? 
because it's that's the only way the energy moves through the ecosystem. Now, we're also going to get biotic diversity. And this is simply how many different kinds of living organisms are there in this particular ecosystem. Uh, it can be uh, a huge number, almost unobtainable by us. Or in some more simpler ecosystems, it may be a much smaller number. Uh, it's going to depend on the interactions with the living and non-living, particularly non-living environment, determines what basically what plants you can have, and the plants determine what animals are going to be there. And that's kind of the generally how that functions. And then the last thing that you're going to have is cycling of materials. Okay, so energy flows and is gone. Remember that from last semester. Energy cannot be recycled, it cannot be reused. Okay, the energy goes from one organism to another, a large chunk of that energy turns into heat, radiates back out into the atmosphere, it's gone. You can't reuse it, okay? Energy flows through and it's what drives, what makes the ecosystem function. But materials, I mean, atoms are atoms, okay? They can be reused. Okay, the oxygen atoms you're breathing in right now, we have no idea where they've been before. They've been all over the place in organic compounds and, you know, they've been in, of course, in the air. Uh, we don't know where all they've been because an oxygen atom is an oxygen atom. They're all the same and they can be reused. So materials are cycled and we'll look at some specific cycles uh, that, uh, that we look at in uh, a, uh, an ecosystem. So this is a, a definition that we can use to kind of take apart an ecosystem and see how it's functioning. Okay, so we're looking at a, a defined area, because if you don't define it, then you obviously can't do anything else with it. Uh, that includes the living organisms interacting with the living and non-living parts of that environment, producing a flow of energy, which determines the trophic structure. Trophic means feeding, so that's who's feeding on who. Uh, biotic diversity, how many different kinds of organisms do I have? And, do, and that is often a function of energy flow as well, then, uh, because if I have lots of energy available, I can have a lot of different kinds of organisms, depending on where I am. If I have very little energy flow, I'm not going to have so many. Okay. And then material cycles. Now, those materials can all be reused, but they don't get reused all by themselves. Somebody has to, there has to be energy to move them around through, through the, the, the uh, ecosystem. So it really, much of it, results from energy, and we'll look at a little bit of historical things about that as we go through this. So, how does energy move? Well, it moves, uh, as I said, it, it flows through and then it's gone, and generally energy starts at what we call the producer level in an ecosystem. Um, these are autotrophs. These are, uh, for the most part, they're photosynthesis. They're doing photosynthesis. They're taking sunlight, converting it, you know, taking that energy and using that to build larger organic molecules. That's what photosynthesis does. Okay? Um, but that's the producer level. If you don't have any producers, you can't have anything else. Okay, if all the plants disappeared, so would we. Because there'd be nothing to eat. There'd be no energy source for us. Uh, it might take a while, but eventually it all disappears. Okay, then the next level, and there can be several levels, levels of consumers. Okay, these are consuming the 
either heterotrophs, or, excuse me, autotrophs, or they're consuming other members of, at their level. But they, can, they will feed on other living things, or things that were alive, depending on the situation. And so they're heterotrophs. They feed on other things. Autotrophs feed themselves. In the case of plants, they take sun, sun, sunlight and they produce their own nutrients. Well, they produce their own uh, complex organic molecules. Uh, consumers feed on others. Now, the energy transfer in ecosystems is not efficient. It's about 10%. And we'll see that this creates issues in an ecosystem as in terms of how many different organisms you can have and how many you can have at each level of consumer. So we could look at the trees that are producing seeds or trees that insects are feeding on and bird is eating the insects and then a hawk eats the bird. About 90% of the energy is lost at each transfer. So there aren't going to be very many hawks. There's going to be enough energy to have a lot of them. Okay. There'll be a lot of insects okay, because they're pretty low on the food chain as we, as we go through that. So this is the flow of energy. Okay, predation is energy flow. That's how organisms stay alive. We're predators too. We just you know, have organized it so that somebody else does all the killing for us. Or when you eat plants, you're essentially a predator on that plant. If you eat a salad, you're a predator. We've grown them and then we pick them and then you eat them. You're still eating another living thing. Okay. Now, another term that we'll see used is community. A community in an ecosystem is all of the different living populations that exist in that ecosystem. I remember we said the last time uh, when we talked about populations, population was a group of organisms that basically live in the same area and they interbreed. They're all the same species. That's a population. You can have a population of chickadees, you can have a population of tulip poplars, you can have a population of ospreys, whatever. Those are populations. Okay? The community is all of those populations put together. All the different living things in, in that ecosystem is called, referred to as the community. Now, the habitat that you have shapes what the, the community will be. So if I'm in the desert, I'm going to have certain types of communities because they're the only ones that can survive there. If I'm in the rainforest, I'm going to have a lot more because the rainforest provides a much richer habitat. Okay? If you're in Tidewater, Virginia, you're going to have a different set of a different community based on the habitat that's here. Habitats, which we'll get into some more, but habitats are basically where do you where do these organisms live? What do they require? What kind of ecosystem? Uh, it's sort of the, the, uh, their address, if you will. You know, uh, if we told you to go find polar bears, you're probably not going to go south because you know they don't live there. Their habitat is in the Arctic. That's where they are. Now, alligators, on the other hand, you're not going to go north because there aren't any up there. It's not appropriate habitat for them. They need warmer, warmer climates. Okay, so uh, 
population, the community, is all of the different populations that are living together in that defined area that we call our ecosystem. Now, every community has a specific structure. Uh, this is part of what the lab that you either have done or will do using all the little beans on the, I think you're still doing uh, big exams this week, or they're just finishing up. Yeah, so uh, the next lab that you do is, is going to be about community structure. You're going to have two different communities of plants. We're, we're using different types of beans to represent the plants. And you're going to see that while you may start off with the same number of plants in each of the two ecosystems you're going to look at, that the distribution of them is going to be quite a bit different. Okay, That's the structure of that community. Now, we define that by two terms, species diversity and species richness. And you will be calculating those as part of your lab. After you do your sampling procedure and everything else, you'll be calculating those. Now, species richness simply is how many species are there. Okay. Um, doesn't say anything about how many of each one. It just says, I got X number of species. I got 18 different species in this, this area. Okay, that's species richness. Now, the fact that I have only one or two of some of those species and lots and lots of some of the other species, that species richness doesn't tell you anything about that. Now, when I get to species diversity, you will be calculating a diversity index. And it takes into account how many of each species are present. Okay? So it's not just how many species, but how many of each one are there. And that's what we mean by species diversity. And there's a, a whole bunch of uh, what are called uh, species, uh, diversity indices. Um, there's three, four different ones that are used. They're all similar, but of course none of them will give you the exact same answer. Okay. Uh, and so uh, this is a, a, always an issue with ecosystems. It's an issue with environmentalists. Uh, you're trying to, to demonstrate that a particular area should be preserved or conserved, and somebody else wants to do something with it. You're probably going to use different statistics to support your case, because you can always find a statistic that will support whatever you want to do. Just play around with them a bit. Uh, when I was in, in college, I, I took a statistics class, and uh, the book's still around. It's a little, little paperback book about, yeah, yeah, big about this thing. It's called How to Lie with Statistics. That was one of the, we had two textbooks for that, but that was one of them. Uh, and you can, I mean, you know, statistics really don't. If you don't know the source and how they've been calculated, it, they really don't. really don't know what they're telling you. So if you're, uh, if you're in the sciences, or social sciences, either one, highly recommend you take a statistics class. Now, if you're in the science program, you don't get a choice. You have to take it. All right. Now, the, the diversity and richness come about because of the interaction with the living and, and non-living portions of that ecosystem. That's what determines that. So uh, as an example, you would find a, a desert has a lot more life than you think in it, but it's not going to have as high a species richness or diversity 
as you would find well, just out in the woods here, or you, uh, of course the rainforest is considered to be the, the most diverse. Uh, but that's an interaction of the organisms with their environment, <coughs> the non-living environment. And that's part of what determines what organisms can be there. That's that biotic diversity thing we talked about in our definition. Now, habitats um, are usually quite large. I mean, basically, um, York River State Park you could consider to be well, there's probably more than one habitat there. You've got uh, you've got uh, forested land. You've got uh, uh, some salt marshes right along the river. You go upstream from those salt marshes, you'll find bracket mar brackish marshes. You go farther in other areas, you'll find freshwater marshes. Um, those are all different habitats. Okay. Now, a niche, on the other hand, and so each of those habitats, you would expect to find certain kinds of finds an animal that can interact with that particular environment okay, and be successful. So in the salt marsh, compared to a freshwater marsh, I'm going to find different plants, I'm going to find different animals, the salt being the major issue. Uh, salt marshes have salt-tolerant organisms in them, otherwise they wouldn't be there. Okay? Freshwater marshes are not salt-tolerant plants at all, they would die if salt water infiltrated where they were. Okay. So that environment determines, you know, that's, that, that becomes the habitat. Each of those is a different habitat. Now, there are lots of species in a habitat. Okay. Go over to the salt marsh over there at York River, you can, you can see Spartina, you can see uh, you know, a number of different kinds of uh, salt marsh grasses. Uh, snails by the gazillions. Okay, if you ever look in there, little crabs are running around, uh, snakes are out there, uh, you know, lot, quite a lot of different organisms there. And so a habitat can have many different organisms. But a niche is the specific role an organism plays in that habitat. Okay, and generally speaking, each species has its own niche. So, as, uh, as an example, your last semester you would have talked about, I hope you talked about Darwin's finches, the birds on the Galapagos Islands. Um, they were finches that apparently got there from the mainland. And now, once they're on those islands, there was a, a diversity, of, you know, the, the different niches were now available. There were no other birds in them. And so some of the birds developed, you know, evolved beaks that were pretty heavy and thick so they could crack large seeds. Others had very small beaks for eating small seeds. Some had very pointed beaks so that they could pick insects out of things. Uh, you know, they're all different. That's because they're each in their own little niche. When they're all in their own niche, they don't compete with each other as much. Okay, so niches are the role or the profession that that organism has in that particular ecosystem. So all ecosystems have one or more habitats, and each habitat will have several niches. The more the energy flow, the higher the energy flow, the more niches there will usually be, and therefore more organisms, therefore more diversity. That's all interconnected.
So habitat and niche are two of the terms that are often used in ecosystems. Okay. Habitat is the general area, the general type of environment that an organism is usually found in. Um, and then the niche is what, what exactly does it do? Now, if two organisms try to share the same niche, then they're going to be in direct competition with each other. And over time, one of them will probably lose out. We'll look at some examples of that. All right, now, trophic levels, another thing we talked, we mentioned. We have producers, then we have primary consumers that feed on producers, and then secondary consumers that feed on primary consumers, and ter tertiary consumers that feed on secondary, or, or at least in theory. Um, these are referred to as trophic levels. Trophic levels are the producers, the primary consumers, the secondary consumers, and so on. Um, basically, it's the who's eating who, the energy flow resulting from predation. And then uh, you also always have decomposers, because as things die, there are organisms out there that decompose and recycle. Okay. Now, a food chain then, is a linear diagram or explanation of this. So, um, as to say, this is a, a marsh area. This is actually down in Florida. Uh, there's some unique adaptations of the plants here to that. But here's what we would mean by a, a food chain. Primary producers are photoautotrophs and chemoautotrophs. Secondary, uh, first level consumers, herbivores, things that eat, that are eating plants, herbivores. Okay. Cows are herbivores. Cows are, are essentially primary consumers. Okay. Um, you also have, always have decomposers there at every level. Um, used to be a few parasites. And then you go up to the next level. Now I have things that feed on the herbivores. Now, we call them carnivores, and most of them are not true carnivores because they do eat other things besides flesh, besides meat. Uh, but the only real true carnivores are the cats. With cats really don't mess with much else, usually. But bears, bears will eat anything. Uh, wolves will eat other things. They'll eat roots and stuff. They'll eat whatever that's available if they can't find I mean, they certainly they'd rather drag down a moose and feed on that, but you know, forage themselves. Uh, but if they can't do that, they'll feed on whatever's available, okay? um, or they die. I mean, it's not much of an option. And then you get up to a third level. You have again uh, some more uh, third-level consumers, fourth-level consumers, and we'll see that most of the time a food chain rarely has more than four or five levels in it. But this is a linear representation. So let, let's look at uh, specific organisms, okay? Um, so we look at, uh, we have plants at the bottom as our producers. Um, we have cutworms, in this case, are my primary consumers. The garter snake is a secondary consumer. The sandpiper eats the garter snake. It's a, it's a next level consumer. And then a uh, marsh hawk eats the sandpiper. And so we have levels there. That's a food chain. Okay, it's a linear arrangement. 
from producer through the different consumer levels. And these are just a couple more. This is a, um, uh, here you have the uh, plant, the caterpillar, the bird, the hawk. This is a marine level one. You have phytoplankton fed on by zooplankton, they're fed on by fish, uh, that, are feed, that are fed on by larger fish, and ultimately there's certain, there's, there's a kind of a top level consumer. Sharks fit into that to a large degree. Uh, unless you're a small shark, nothing messes with you too much, uh, but if you're a small shark, you may get eaten by other sharks. That happens. They're, they're not picky. They're, they're, cannibalism is fine as far as they're concerned. Yeah. I mean, anything that you find license plates in their stomachs and things like that, and they obviously are eating animals. Okay. Now, the problem with the food chain arrangement is that it doesn't match up with reality. Okay, so that little cutworm we had back in that food chain, and we uh, said the garter snakes are eating them. Well, the garter snakes aren't the only things eating them. There are other things eating them. There are birds eating them. There are small rodents eating them. It's not just the garter snake. And so a food chain, because it is linear, does not accurately represent what's going on in an ecosystem. It doesn't even come close. And so they've developed a different way of looking at it. We call those food webs. And this, in theory, would be a description of all of the feeding relationships in an ecosystem, assuming that you actually knew that. Okay? But it would be more complex because somebody, uh, for instance, the garter snake uh, in that case was a uh, a primary consumer, but garter snakes may eat small fish. They may eat a small, uh, may eat a rodent if they're a large garter snake. Uh, that puts them at a different level in the in the chain. And so, an organism can be in more than one level of the food chain, and we represent that by something we call a food web. So this is a diagrammatic one. Uh, down here, grasses and flowers, and then these are all the things. All of these are primary consumers. Okay. And then here's a secondary consumer, but uh, the spider is a tertiary, is a, uh, is a second level consumer. Um, it can be eaten by frogs, it might be eaten by garter snakes, so also eat frogs. Birds are eating over here. You've got the weasel who feeds on the variable, also feeds on the sparrow. Badgers will eat any of these. Coyotes, coyotes might eat kill a small badger. Uh, everybody is interacting. There, there is no specific chain. You can't look at them and say, oh, you're a garter snake. The only thing you're allowed to eat are cutworms. No, that doesn't work like that. They're going to eat anything that they can. And so a food web tries to represent that. Again, the problem is, in most ecosystems, we really don't know every single feeding relationship in that ecosystem. I mean, the large animals, yeah, that's easy for the most part. But you get down into, what about all the little soil organisms? There's, if you took a teaspoon of, of topsoil, there are literally hundreds of thousands of organisms in there who are busily living their little lives down in that soil. Uh, we don't even know what they all are. So it's very difficult to really do a food web concept. The concept is 
is appropriate. Uh, so here's here this if you were to look at a, a, a field, uh, trying to move away to this picture. Uh, You went out in that field and tried to figure out every living thing that was in that field, you'd be spending your whole life in that field. And you still probably wouldn't have them all. And then how do you how do you know who's eating who? Well, you've got to observe that. Okay, it's easy to see grasshoppers being eaten by a spider or being eaten by a bird. Okay, but what about the smaller things? Have you seen every insect that bird eats? You know, I mean it's just really to actually observe that means hours and hours and hours out in the field and nobody has the funding or you know it's just only so much you can do okay. it's really complex okay so this would be a, a grazing food web this is a trital in other words decomposers uh, you know, uh, this is another type of diagram Basically, what they've done, done here is drawn arrows connecting everybody who eats everything. In this case, it's known to eat anybody else. Now, the more organisms you put in there and the more you learn about what they eat, your nest of arrows gets more and more complicated. But conceptually, it is the more appropriate way to view trophic levels. Trophic levels are not just neat little linear things there very complex, interacting. Organisms could be on more than one level. Okay. Poor little mouse here. Uh, little rodents are always uh, uh, eaten by all kinds of things. Uh, and, but they also eat the vegetation. They may eat small insects. And in turn, they're preyed on by all kinds of things. Okay. Uh, you'll find that small rodents are often one of the more important parts of Now, during this process of feeding, what the organism is doing, of course, is catching and then eating that other organism. And that is in order to get the nutrients that are in it. Okay. Now, this brings up uh, an issue with toxic materials because they can accumulate. We have a concept here called bioaccumulation. Okay. So, DDT is the, probably the most famous example from uh, Rachel Carson, uh, the, the Silent Spring. That's probably, most of you may not even have heard of that. That's been quite a long time ago. Uh, but the, pro the point here is that DDT is a pesticide. It used to be used quite a lot. It's now outlawed in the United States and most of Europe. Um, DDT, uh, I can remember when I was a kid, we had it. My dad had it in the garage. He had these little, little uh, Little cans that had a rubber diaphragm on top, and you push down on that, and this blue powder would come out. And it was DDT. It would go all over everything. You know? All right. It did act as a pesticide. The problem is, it is not metabolized. It is not broken down. So when a living thing absorbs some of the DDT, it can't metabolize it. It cannot break it down and get rid of it. And it ends up usually being stored in fatty tissues. The result of this is something like this. Here is the amount of DDT that was in water. This was a study, this is from Long Island. 
uh, this is the amount that was in water. Now we look at the plankton, and every time the zooplankton, every time they eat something that has tiny amounts of DDT, every time they eat, they add to the amount of DDT that they have because they can't break it down. Okay? And so the concentration of the DDT goes up. This is some algae. Look at the shrimps. You notice now it's a, uh, it's a higher concentration up to the, some of the fish, the flounders, uh, herons, and ultimately with gulls, there was a huge amount of DDT in the gull. This is called bioaccumulation, okay? or biomagnification. You'll see both terms used. Um, and it is why at the time uh, they, that Rachel Carson uh, wrote her book, um, it was called Silent Spring because uh, bird populations were dropping. What was happening is the DDT in them caused, when the females produced their eggs, it caused the shells to be thinner, and then they would break easily, and then the, the, the little chicks would never hatch. They would be dead. Okay? Uh, that's what happened to the osprey. Now, osprey around here now, I mean, they're, they're all over the place around here. Uh, but 25 years ago, there were very few, and it was all part of that DDT issue. Now they've made, now that we've banned DDT, while there's still DDT out there, is much less of it now. And so they're, they're obviously doing a lot better. And like I say, Osprey now are perfectly common. You, you put a post and a platform out pretty much anywhere and some, some Ospreys are gonna build a nest on it. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, in fact, a lot of people do that on purpose because they, they can enjoy having them around. But, uh, okay, so this is the same issue with mercury. And in, in, uh, mercury is another toxin. Now, William and Mary has a study going on in the uh, Shenandoah River. There used to be a factory out in that area that made batteries, and there's a lot of mercury that was dumped. Uh, and they've been studying for several years now what, how, what does that mercury, how does it move in the ecosystem, what does it, what, what does it do to organisms? We know that it's toxic. Uh, there was a long time ago, probably 50 years ago, in Japan, there were people dying around this one bay, it, and they were eating mostly fish from that they caught there, and it turned out there was a lot of mercury in the sediments, and the fish were accumulating the mercury, and then the people were eating the mercury, and eventually it got to toxic levels and killed them. Okay, biomagnification, bioaccumulation, it is, it is a, really a problem because many of the things that humans have made that do well, they do good things for us in, in one respect, are not things that living things can break down and therefore they accumulate in the environment. Um, I know there's a lot of stuff in the sediments of the James River. Fortunately, most of it's now fairly buried under newer sediments. But uh, uh, there's a chemical spill in Hopewell in quite a few years ago now substance called ketone, which is quite toxic, and uh, basically uh, came down the James River. Eventually, a lot of it settled into the sediments, but uh, people were advised not to eat anything out of that James River during that time. And in fact, I don't think there's a river in Virginia that I know of that does not have some kind of environmental warning on it. It says, do not eat fish out of this for more than X number of times a month. 
that, that's just what we've done to it. Okay, so if it's a, if it's a uh, chemical that cannot be broken down, cannot be metabolized, then it tends to accumulate as you go up the food chain or you know, up through the food web. Okay, it affects birds, it affects tends to affect birds, the higher the level of the predator. So think about this for a moment. A, a first level predator eats a few of the consumers, or excuse me, a first level consumer eats some of the producers, gets a little bit of this toxin, but then it accumulates a little bit. But the next level predator has to eat many of those second level guys and accumulates yet more. And the next level predator has to eat many of that level and accumulates yet even more. And that's why at the top of the food chain, things like, like gulls and, uh, and like osprey and bald eagles uh, were, were suffering from this problem. Okay. Now, since uh, we, we have made it better, bald eagles have become this fairly common around here. Uh, you know, they're as common enough that most people don't even remark about them anymore when they see one. That was very, they were very rare a few years, quite a few years ago. It's quite a comeback for them, for the Osprey. So we can make it better if we know what's going on. And that's what research does, figure out what's happening. Now, so we said that in our ecosystem, we had all of the living things that were interacting with each other. And what we want to look at now are what are some of the interaction, types of interactions that would normally occur in an ecosystem between the organisms. Uh, and we could get down ultimately to predation as well, because that, that certainly is a, uh, one of the uh, interactions. So uh, the first part here is really looking at symbiotic relationships. Symbiotic relationship is when two species, two different species, have a relatively long-term interaction, relationship with each other. Uh, usually to the point that at least one of them can't survive well without the other one, although not always, uh, but usually. And so the first thing we look at is something called commensalism. And commensalism, one of the species benefits um, the other one really doesn't benefit much, but it's not harmed by the interaction in any way. Okay, and so you have uh, here this uh, top one here. This is a scallop with some barnacles growing on it. Okay, because barnacles will attach to almost any hard surface they can. Uh, the barnacles are not harming the scallop in any way, but they benefit by having a place to attach to because they need a hard surface to attach to. Uh, over here, these are uh, these, the birds here on the cows. They are actually benefiting now. Um, in uh, in the plains, in the uh, the Serengeti places like that, these birds might actually also be provide a service that might be warning. But if you're just in a cow pasture, they're not doing anything for the cows at all. But what they are doing, or what the cow is doing for the birds, as the cow moves through that tall grass, insects are going all over the place. And the bird will eat those insects. So the bird is riding along on the cow, waiting for things to be flushed out as the cow moves through the thing. 
It's a commensalistic relationship. And then over here, of course, we have the uh, pond fish and the uh, sea anemone. Sea anemones, of course, eat fish. They have toxic chemicals, <coughs> which we call nematocysts. Remember that from when we looked at Cnidarium. But the pond fish can swim around in there at will. Uh, they apparently can mimic the mucus uh, that the anemone produces, and the anemone does not realize that it's something that's edible, and leaves it alone. So it's protected. Plus, when the anemone catches something, the fish will nibble at bits that come, you know, that they can. So the fish benefits. The sea anemone is not overly benefit at all. It's just kind of there. But it's not harmed, and that's the key for commensalism. So that's one type of symbiotic relationship. Mutualism, well, there's also a, a mentalistic relationship. We have a, a, a lot of those, um, okay, mostly with bacteria. But most people have little mites that live in their eyelashes. They actually go down in the hair follicles, and they live down in the hair follicles. Um, they don't harm you but you provide them with a home and everything they need. That's a commensalistic relationship. All right, so mutualism. In this case, both species are going to benefit from the interaction. Now, if it's a facultative one, it means that they can survive without each other. But if it's an obligatory mutualism, then each must have access to the other one to complete its life cycle. It cannot survive without that. Here's a, a, a kind of a, a, an example of an obligatory relationship. You can see yucca plants around here. I've seen people plant them, and they get these nice spikes of white flowers in the spring. Um, there's a moth called the yucca moth that is the only thing that pollinates the yucca plant. So without the moth, the yucca is not going to produce any seeds. It's got to be pollinated before you can have any seeds. They seeds form in a little pod, and the moth lays the eggs on the seed pod. And their larvae go into the pod, and they feed on some of the seeds. They never eat them all, but they eat some of the seeds. So the moth cannot reproduce without the presence of the yucca. The yucca cannot reproduce without the presence of the moth. If either of them were to disappear, they would both end up disappearing. That's an obligatory mutualistic relationship. Um, figs have a similar one. There are little wasps that get into the figs. In fact, the females are, are, don't even fly. Um, they live inside of figs, and they, uh, that's where they reproduce. They lay their eggs in there. They, the larvae are in there feeding on the fig fruit, uh, and they help pollinate. They help you know, with fertilization. Uh, and if you eat figs, if you, if you uh, eating the little larvae and everything because they're inside. You don't notice them. They're so tiny you don't know they're there. There are probably a lot of things we eat that we don't know we're there. It's just as well. Okay. Now, we can also have competition between organisms. Uh, resources are never infinite. And so if the resources are limited, then organisms are going to have to compete for those resources. Now, there's two ways that that happens. 
intraspecific means all the robins out there are competing for grass space to hunt for insects, worms and, and other insects that they, that they eat. Okay? That's what they, they're doing. They're, that's intraspecific competition because they're all trying to feed on the same resource. They're all trying to make, put, build their nests at a certain level in a certain kind of environment. They're competing for that. Now, this is usually a very intense competition because organisms that are in the same species need the same resources and therefore there's a lot of competition. This is part of what drives natural selection. Competition for resources. Some compete better than others. They leave more offspring. Their genes get passed on more often. Now, then you have interspecific, which is competition between species. This is not usually as intense because if the species are in mostly in different niches, then there's less competition between them. But you do get both types of competition. Okay, so why is it more intense for intra than for inter? Because the requirements for individuals within a species are always going to be more closely matched, more of the same than between two different species. Now, uh, this can be done, and uh, this competition may take some different forms. One is interference. So, uh, one species controls or blocks ask us of another species to some resource. That's, okay, that's, that's interference. Uh, and this can happen within a species as well. Okay? Then you can have exploitive competition. Everybody has access to the resource, but one of them uses it better than the other one. Is better able to make use of that resource. That's, again, a type of competition. So here's an example. These are chipmunks that live out west. I'm never sure why we don't have chipmunks here in this area. Because you don't have to go very far west. And they're all <coughs> I don't know what's different about the coastal plains. They don't, they don't like it here. Uh, out west, you see chipmunks. Every campground you go to, you've got chipmunks begging for food. You know, uh, they're, they're really common. You can do that over in the Blue Mountains. They're, they're all they're wandering around. All right. Now, out west, there's a particular um, pinion pine is a particular type of tree that produces um, really nice size seeds. Uh, if you have eaten anything that had pine nuts in it, it's pinion pine nuts. That's what you're eating, usually. They're pretty large, they taste pretty good, okay? Pinion pine. Well, uh, they both live in that basic area, but the Miriam's chipmunk is excluded by the other species that are present. They cannot get into the, into the they can't make, make use of that particular resource. Okay, so that would be interference, competition. Okay, so these are just some of the, the different chipmunks. They're not all the same. There are differences in them. They all have their, many of them live in, the, in a similar habitat. They all have their niche within that habitat. Okay, another competitive exclusion. These are barnacles here. Two different species of barnacles. Um, 
they compete for resources, but one of them is more successful than the other. And the resource that they are competing for here is space on the rocks because they have to adapt. They're competing for space and then, of course, feeding. Now, you'll find that in uh, the, uh, this particular species here, Galanus, uh, it's a tidal range thing. Uh, they do not, uh, they, the other one here, uh, however that's pronounced, uh, can, uh, can live up to the high tide line because it can survive being exposed to the air for a period of time. Okay, and so you'll find it above the tide line and of course you'll also find it down a little bit below. Now, the other one, Galanthus, is a much larger organism, but it cannot survive being exposed to the air. And so you only find them below the low tide line, or maybe a little bit into the intertidal area. Okay. And so this is a, a competitive exclusion. They're competing for the same resource, space, but each one competes for different space. And it turns out that if there is no Balanus around, the other one will actually use all of that space, but if both are present, then they are each restricted to a particular area. Competitive exclusion. They're competing for that space. This is another experiment that was done. Um, these are paramecia. You know, friendly little paramecia that you've probably all seen in a, in, in a microscope at some time. Um, two different species. If you culture them individually, they each have this growth pattern that you would see. So they, they initially put a few of them in and then they'll, they'll grow and, until they're using the resources and they can't really grow any farther. All right, you can see the pattern. If you put them both in the same culture, they start off the same and then all of a sudden caudatum starts to disappear. Okay. This was a competitive exclusion. It could not compete. Uh, the Aurelia outcompetes the caudatum for resources. And if you put them both in there, the Aurelia is the only one that's going to survive. Competitive exclusion. Uh, also do something called resource partitioning. In any given area, organisms may only make use of a portion of that resource and not all of it. So these are, uh, just looking at plant roots here, you'll notice that the plant roots uh, vary in the depth that they go. And so they're not compete, they don't compete as much for water and minerals in the soil because they're all at different levels in the soil. They're partitioning the resource so that all of them can live in that area without, this is a way of avoiding competition. Called resource partitioning. Another probably better example is this. These are warblers. Little brown birds, mostly, is what people refer to. If you go over uh, to the eastern shore when they're migrating, you'll see all different kinds of these little tiny birds. You know, they're really small birds. They don't, uh, they, they don't usually see them much around here because um, they, they summer up farther north and they winter farther south, so we don't, we don't see them when they're passing through. But up north, where they are going to nest, they live in pine forests. And it turns out that each of them, they all live on the pine trees. All 
five of these species, but each hunts for food in a different part of the tree. So they are not competing directly with each other. Each is, they partition the resource, each is able to get what it needs from a particular part of the tree, and they don't compete directly with each other. This is another example of resource partition. Now, we also have predator and prey interactions. That's how the world works. Um, so, predators are, are consumers, they get their energy from meat, from other living things. Um, the uh, number of prey and the different, uh, uh, both different types and the number of any one type determine the diversity of the predators. If there's a lot of prey species, you're going to have more predators. If there's fewer prey species, and we looked at that under population, where we looked at the rabbits and the lynx and how when the rabbit population dropped, the lynx population then dropped, and the rabbit population then went back up, then the lynx population went back up and went back up and down. Okay? That illustrates this type of interaction. Predators have to have prey to survive. Now, most predators, when their primary prey, what they prefer is not available, they will attempt to switch to other prey. But that won't be ideal for them. Going to get them through the rough time, but it's not going to be ideal. They may not get enough nutrition to successfully breed. Okay, um, you know, it just doesn't work for them. But eventually, if there's fewer predators, the number of prey species are going to increase, and then they'll be able to, to reproduce again. Uh, we also have something called coevolution of predator and prey. Obviously, predators are selective agents on the prey. Those prey that manage to escape or to hide or whatever are going to, going to be able to reproduce and they'll pass their genes on to the next generation. Okay, and then the predator has the same issue. The predators that are better able to find and catch their prey, they're the ones that are going to be more successful at reproducing and they're going to pass their genes on more often. And so the two are interacting continually. Um, this just shows you a couple of them, uh, wolves and uh, caribou, and then that's the lynx and snowshoe hares. Um, that, that snowshoe hare is about done, done for there. Um, the, the lynx are really, they're, they're kind of large cats with big furry paws so they can move in the snow easily. Uh, they, you don't find the many of them in the, in the U.S., a little bit out west maybe. Mostly up in Canada. In fact, they're called Canadian lynx. Okay, let's give you another example. I don't have a slide for this, but let's go over another example. Okay, so moths. Uh, I've seen lots of moths starting to come out, mostly small ones right now. When are moths usually active? Yeah, they're usually active at night. Exactly. And then during the day, well, you got a problem because you got to be somewhere and birds will eat moths. And so moths have to, that's why many of them have a sign of, uh, we'll look at some camouflage here in a minute. But what I'm more interested in right here is at night when the moths are active, the primary predator are bats. Bats eat insects at night, you know, echolocation and all that, you know, so on. All right, 
Now, there was a researcher who was studying moths. Nothing to do with bats. But he noticed, and he was studying his, uh, trying to differentiate different species of moths from each other, that when he dissected some of them, and yes, you can dissect moths, especially the larger ones, uh, he found that some of the moths had, you know, they, they have, they're, they're insects, so they have an external skeleton, right? A chitin external skeleton. But he found that some of the moths of a certain species had a thin area of chitin on along their, their side, and attached to that thin area was a nerve. He said, hmm, what is this? What's this for? Well, it turned out that that little thinner area of the, of the exoskeleton would vibrate at certain frequencies. And it was essentially a way of hearing for the moth. It turned out when they tested all the different frequencies that the moth heard best at the same frequency that the bats were transmitting. So the moth could know when a bat was getting close and take evasive action. They either turn or what many of them do, they just fold up their wings and go boom, down. And the bat misses them, hopefully. I mean, they don't always miss. They may still get them. Okay. Well, that that's, okay, that's one thing. And further looking at his, so now he started to get interested in the bats, too. Further looking at this moss, he found that some of them had a roughened area along the lower edge of their wing that could be used to make a sound. Now, it's not something we would ever hear, but they could actually make a sound. And when he tested the sound, he found out that the sound they made was at the same frequency as the bats used. And essentially, they were jamming the bat, okay, by transmitting it, you know, something out at the same frequency the bat was trying to listen to, they were essentially causing the bat to miss more often, which is all you want, you know, you want a higher probability of, of success here. All right, well, predator and prey co-evolved. So what are the bats doing about this? Well, there's lots of moths out there that don't do this, and so most of the bats don't care. But he also, would, so then he got really interested in bats. And he found that there is, it was a, a couple species of bats that now echolocate at two different frequencies. They have one, and then the other, and then one, and then the other. They go back and forth. This is, avoids the jamming. Okay? Coevolution of predator and prey. You expect this kind of interaction will continue over time. When the prey gets a better defense, the predator's going to find a way to overcome that defense, and then the prey's going to have to come up with a new one. It goes on over and over out in the natural world. Okay? That's coevolution between the two. We know there's a lot of coevolution between insects and flowers. Now, that's not predator and prey in that case, That's, but we know that. Flowers attract certain insects to them. There are orchids that, I think I mentioned this when we did plants, there are orchids where the flowers mimic a female wasp. Male wasp comes in for a landing and thinks he's going to mate, tries to mate, and all he does is get covered in pollen because there's no female there. It's just part of the flower. And he gets pissed off and he flies off and he sees another one. You know, he goes, does that again. Uh, and you know, that's coevolution between the two. 
the, the, the orchid had to be have a close mimic of that in order to get. Now, maybe at first it wasn't all that good, and only a few wasps bothered to, to try. Okay, but over time, those plants were more successful at being pollinated, and over time, it, it became pretty accurate to the point that the wasps have a hard time telling that it's not another wasp. Co-evolution. All right. What about, so how did the prey defend themselves? Well, there's a number of things. We're going to look at each of these. Uh, what time is it here? We'll just look a little bit at some camouflage, and then we'll look at mimicry, warning coloration, and what's called moment of truth defenses. Uh, that's the kind of surprise defense. All right, we'll see how that goes. All right, so camouflage. Uh, camouflage is some kind of patterning or coloring that, and, and also usually involves behaviors that make it harder for them to be seen in their environment. They can blend better into the environment. Okay, so for instance up here, this is a bird here, this is a bittern. They live in the marsh. That when they sit on the nest, which is on the ground, they sit up straight so they kind of are like the reeds here, and as the reeds move in the wind, they will sway back and forth, just like the reed. Makes them harder to pick out. Okay. Uh, obviously here we have a moth that uh, it went into the land, could blend into the background. Uh, this is a caterpillar. It looks a lot like a bird dropping. Okay, most birds aren't interested in eating bird dropping. Okay. It's a defense, camouflage defense. Okay. Uh, now, mimicry is when one species looks like another one, mimics its appearance, but is actually not that, that may not even be that type of, of organism at all. Okay, in this example here, um, first glance, these look like ants. They're not. These are spiders. They prey on ants. You'll notice they have only six legs down. Their extra set of legs is held up in the air like antenna, and they wave them around like ants wave their antenna around, and they are mimicking ants. So they can get close enough to grab one and eat it. That's mimicry. And there's a lot of different kinds. We'll get into some more examples. All right, so here's some camouflage. This is like a uh, young flounder. It's a fish. Um, at first glance, you don't notice it, okay? But if you look a little, you, the outline eventually becomes clear. You can see the, the fins here and down here. And here's an eye, the other eye. You can see that uh, it's actually a fish, but it blends into its environment. Octopi are wonderful at doing this camouflage. We looked at a video about that earlier. Um, okay, this is a bird on its nest. Again, you can pick out the bird because you know what birds look like. Uh, but it's not easy for a predator. Predators are scanning through and moving on, and it's hard for a predator. It makes it harder for the predator to find it. Uh, again, this is a moth over here. This is a uh, this is a bird dropper. Okay, trying to look like something you're not. Okay, that's what camouflage is all about. Um, Seahorse. This is called the leafy sea dragon. It's a seahorse. Uh, this is over in here. This is actually algae. 
seaweed. And you can see that it mimics that seaweed really well, and that camouflages it. It makes it harder to pick it out from the seaweed that it's swimming around in. You know, it barely looks like, a, like an animal, but there's, there's, the, there's the mouth, the head, and so on. Um, tree hoppers look like thorns. Now, when they congregate like this, they don't do so well. But when they spread out along a branch and then hunker down on the branch, they just look like thorns. Again, type of camouflage. They don't see me, they can't see me. This is a plant that looks like rocks, basically. This is from the um, Namibian desert. Uh, it's a cactus, type of cactus. Uh, and cactuses have to worry about being eaten by a lot of things because they contain water usually. And in a desert where, where water's in short supply, a lot of animals will try to get water out of the cactus. So this, right here in the middle, is actually a plant that's masquerading as a rock. Okay, cheetahs have their coloration, and lions too, because as the grasses grow high, a lot of them turn kind of yellowish brown, and they can hide in there. They're not easily seen. Well, this is a jumping spider, okay? Just a tip. It's like the one you'd see in your backyard or on your house or something. But nothing exciting. Uh, they have two big eyes in the front because they're visual hunters. They have pretty good eyesight. Most spiders don't, but they do. All right. This is a type of fly. It's trying to look like a spider. Notice if you, if you just use your imagination on this one a little bit, okay? Legs over here and here. Okay, this one, legs here, here's the other leg, so there's four legs on each side if you're not looking carefully, okay? It's kind of masquerading as a spider. That's it. Mimicry and camouflage. Uh, frogfish have this little, uh, they, they look like, like rocks on the bottom of the ocean, but they have this little lure up here that they shake around when a fish comes over to investigate. Huge mouth just opens up, sucks in all the water, and the fish live. Um, these are a type of frog. They're called glass frogs because basically you can almost see through them. Uh, makes them harder to see. Okay. Endless forms. That's and then there's warning coloration, and I won't go into that now. We'll do that next time. Uh, but this is advertising that I'm dangerously yellow. Okay. So warning coloration, that's what we'll pick up next time. And then we're going to work on a case study. Okay. Enjoy the uh, rest of the week and the weekend.